May all grace, mercy, and peace be to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 64 will serve as the basis for the sermon this morning. I don't know how many of you recall or um, uh, remember what this great novel was all about, but Charles Dickens' novel, Great Expectations, right? We hear it from time to time, and, you know, I never really appreciated that novel way back in the day when I was in high school going through English literature. I first read it, and I thought, this is dry as a martini. Don't, I can't understand this. I just wasn't into it. It wasn't until years later when I got older and a little bit more mature that I, that I read that novel, and I really began to understand what the novel was all about. Um, you know, it had a little bit of humor in it and adventure and some drama. It even had a little romance and mystery to it as well. And here's a condensed version of it. A little boy named Pip, right? He, he ends up meeting, uh, he comes from this poor area. He was an orphan kid. Uh, grew up in his sister's house, you know, and uh, apprentice as a blacksmith. Meets this convict named Magwitch, and his accomplice helps him out. Later on, he goes to stay at uh, the status house with Mrs. Haversham, meets this girl named Estella, falls in love, gets scorned in love, ends up uh, with a, a great gift from a benefactor, an unknown benefactor, uh, a gift for an education in London. So now he's got all these great expectations about what he's going to become as he became more and more ashamed of his upbringing. And then he finds out that the, that the benefactor wasn't who he thought it was, uh, his benefactor ends up turning out to be Magwitch, who ends up dying. Then Pip ends up having uh, a great amount of debt, becomes arrested, has health issues. Later on, he returns to Satis House to meet Estella, who's now widowed at this point. And then we're, one's left with the hope that these two will never, ever again be separated. Um, this whole story, though, at the end of the day, is about true identity. And it's really about uh, great expectations. Pip's ex expectations of social standing and wealth being realized by Pip as being, well, quite honestly, less important than things like loyalty and compassion. And when you look at that novel written back in the 1800s, there's a lot of parallels between that novel and society today. Even more so, there's a lot of parallels between that novel and society, say, thousands of years ago. You know, honestly, at the end of the day, when you think about it, life is about identity. And truthfully, everybody has great expectations. But what happens when our great expectations don't become a reality? What happens when things don't pan out exactly the way we expect them to? Well, I guess that depends on how we identify ourselves, doesn't it? Isaiah and the Israelites of his time certainly had great expectations. The Israelites were just coming out of captivity uh, as King Cyrus had defeated the Babylonians and had allowed the Israelites to return to their homes, um, gave them some freedoms. And yet, as the, as the exiles start to return to Judah and Jerusalem, uh, fights began to break out between those who had returned and those who had settled in their land while they were in exile. And then for the Israelites, the um, Realization came quickly that there was not going to be a return to former glory, at least not in the way that they expected, and not in the time frame and manner that they expected. And now we find Isaiah today standing before the Lord, lamenting. And during his lament, he reveals 
some of the great expectations that the Israelites have. Oh, that you would run the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. Isaiah here kind of invokes Israel's collective remembrance of God Almighty, of how God had acted in the past, by calling on God now to act as he had in the past. And yet Isaiah quickly shifts from God in the present to now God in the present, a God who seems to be quiet and absent from his people during all their troubles and their expectations. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And of course, there is the reason for the expectation that God should act as Isaiah calls him to do. When Isaiah says, you meet him joyfully who works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is, we've done our part, now do yours. Isaiah seemingly even goes so far as to imply that it's God's fault that Israel sins. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? It's like he's railing against God to, to act. And to this point, there seems to be great accusations as to why their expectations haven't been realized. It's certainly a cry born from misery and from a great amount of pain that they have experienced. And if you've experienced any of that, misery and pain, well, have you ever had the expectations dashed through suffering and misery? And if you have, then you know what tends to happen. We tend to end up taking a posture of defensiveness, where we vow to never again get hurt, where we're on guard and we rely upon ourselves for any hope, where we say to ourselves, we won't be vulnerable anymore. And yet at the end of the day, there's only one way through the misery and the pain, and that is to become vulnerable before God. I know, you know, and especially in society today, that vulnerability is viewed as a weakness. In Western society, especially frowns upon vulnerability as a trait for poor leadership. But what does it mean to become vulnerable before God? Well, it means to admit that we are wrong as persons, as people, that we are sinners, that we are in this constant struggle between faith and what is directly in front of us. We struggle not to fall into the trappings of the world while trying to remain faithful to God. And sometimes we're afraid that people will judge us on our Christian morals and ethics because they will view them as the weaknesses. It's like we're constantly battling ourselves. I don't know how many of you out there are Star Wars fans like I am, but I'm reminded of the scene uh, from uh, Empire Strikes Back where uh, Skywalker's on Dagobah, and he's standing with Yoda outside this tree, and there's this great cave in the tree. And Luke begins to ask Yoda what's in there, and Yoda responds, only what you take with you. So Luke, knowing he has to go into this cave, 
arms up and he straps on his lightsaber and Yoda says, you know, uh, you don't need that basically because I can't do a Yoda voice. And uh, he tells him, your weapons, you will not need them. And in Luke goes and he quickly encounters his enemy, Darth Vader, and he lops off Darth Vader's head and it rolls to the ground and the faceplate pops off. And only instead of being Darth Vader's face, whose face is it? It's Luke Skywalker's face. And the whole, the whole scene is about fear, about, about failure, about fear and in, 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 in not being able to handle things ourselves, and it's a trust issue. And as I look at the scene, I think to myself, what if it's just that we were afraid of becoming vulnerable and won't let ourselves open up to the realization that we're the ones who are actually wrong? What if it, we're, we're just afraid of actually trusting God to come through for us. Well, Isaiah shows us the way to what vulnerability looks like. I get, Isaiah goes from a tone of apparent pleading and accusation to truth and acceptance. He admits before God that Israel has become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, and we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away though there really never is a full admission of guilt on behalf of the Israelites. But Isaiah takes one step and then really gets to the heart of the problem. Here's what he identifies as he becomes more vulnerable before God. The Israelites have thought that God has hidden himself. And that's why they continue to have the issues they have and believe that nothing will ever be restored. But Isaiah voices what the actual issue is. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. It's not that God has gone silent or hid himself. It's that nobody calls on him anymore. In other words, no one's made themselves vulnerable and trusted to call on the Lord. And to make himself further vulnerable, Isaiah calls upon God. Not God as a mighty cosmic divine warrior, but God as a creator. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Not only does Isaiah do what many have not done, which is call upon the Lord, but he also does it in a manner that puts man in his proper place before God. And thus, the expectation now is that God's anger would relent, and Israel's iniquities would be forgotten. Here we are, towards the end of 2020 in the calendar year. This is the first Sunday in Advent, and we're heading towards Christmas and towards the end of 2020 and hopefully into a better year next year. And I wonder, what are our expectations this coming Advent? What are our expectations for 2021? Perhaps we expect to a return to normalcy and COVID-19 will become a footnote in history. Perhaps we expect that our nation would heal and racism will magically cease. Perhaps we will expect to welcome a new pastor and ascension will return to its former days of glory. Perhaps our, on a personal level, we expect our health to be restored, our financial constraints to be gone, 
and we land those coveted jobs and have reconciled relationships? Whatever our expectations may be, both individually and corporately, what do we do if our expectations don't manifest themselves the way we expect them to? Does that mean that God has gone missing or is silent? Are we calling upon God or trying to handle our things ourselves? Have we built a wall around us and hardened ourselves as if to say that God is the cause of all of our problems? What are our expectations here at Ascension? I can tell you this. We can still expect hope. It just may not be in the manner that you and I expect it to see, to see it. Because we still have to live with one foot in this world. We still live in a messy world. But our hope is still there. Our hope is that Jesus still comes and will still return, restoring peace to us once and for all. So as we begin Advent and approach this upcoming year, we need to do it the way Isaiah did it. We need to approach God and call upon Him constantly. We need to make ourselves vulnerable before God and recognize that when God is hidden or silent, it's not because He's not calling out to us, it's because we have gone silent ourselves. We need to recognize our sins for what they are and bury them in the past. It's the only way to move forward through pain and misery. We need to be together here at Ascension in worship. We need to be together in His Word. That's where God speaks to us. That's where we find our hope, in His Word and in sacrament. Constantly refreshing us, renewing us, and taking away our sins. And when we make ourselves vulnerable before God and recognize our standing with Him, then we see that no matter what the reality is for us here on earth, the hope that God has promised us is still alive and is ours. So I pray, my friends, I pray that we would call out with Isaiah, recognizing that God is the potter and that we are the clay. And then we say together in faith, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. But behold, please look, we are all your people. And to God be all the glory. Amen.